Let's pray. Jesus, uh, as we dive into a, a subject that is super important and, and yet super serious, I just ask for your word to be the light that you promised that it would be, the lamp that you guaranteed that it could be for our path. I'm so thankful that you didn't leave us alone. You didn't leave us as orphans. You left us a Holy Spirit to guide us and to counsel us and to comfort us. And we, we pray for that this morning. We believe it and we expect it to happen in our own lives. It's in, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you knew, but it happened this week. It finally happened. Uh, hell froze over. Uh, it, it turns out... that happens often. (laughs) So that whole thing, well, I'll do that when hell freezes over. That's going to happen in like November, December, January, February, every year in hell, Michigan. When we uh, talk about a subject like this, (laughs) it's important that we know what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. So when I refer to hell this morning, I'm not referring to hell, Michigan, FYI. And when you talk about a subject like this, I feel like that, for the most part, Growing up in an American idea, and I, I, this is around the world as well, when you hear about the subject of hell, you think you kind of know what it is because it's like you go to Mount Rushmore, you, you know what Mount Rushmore is all about because you've seen it, you've seen the pictures, you've been there, you know what it's about. But what you don't know about Mount Rushmore is it's much like the subject of hell is that there's more going on than meets the eye with it. That if you go <laughs> behind Mount Rushmore, there's a whole other thing going on that you just have to do the work and look deeper. And today, I want to look into the scriptures and look deeper and see what the whole idea of what God meant. And to do that, I, I, I feel like I need to briefly remind you of what we, where we started just a few weeks ago. We can't talk about eternity and not talk about a subject like eternal death. We just can't. Whether you believe in it or not, the Bible speaks of it, and we have to talk about it. And so I wanted to remind you, without my fancy laser pointer, so I'm feeling kind of inadequate this morning for that, but to remind you of where we started, that the the top view, that earthly life, death, password moment, life after death, is the way that most of us, when we think of eternal life, is what we think. What, you know, we were born... We're, we're uh, mostly good, but some bad, and at some point we come to this moment, and then when we get to heaven, or this moment right after death, that there's the password moment. Did you use the password? And it depends completely on denominational background. You know, some of it might be baptism was your password. Some of you, it's the prayer. Uh, some of you, it's if you were good enough. But if you get to that password, then you either go to heaven or you go to hell. And that pretty much sums up every chick track that you ever found in a bathroom in a truck stop all across America. That's all of it in one. And I would say to you this morning, based on scripture, that that view isn't entirely inaccurate, it's just incomplete. That it's, there's more to it than that because the, the story of scripture itself talks about we gotta start at the beginning and the image of God is how we were made in a garden that we had made in his image and we were made to be the image bearers of God. And that because of sin, that death would enter the world. Death was never meant to be here. It's an enemy. It's an invader. And you know how I know this? Because dry heaves. 
my daughter, it was Valentine's Day evening, and my da- this is one, she's this sophomore in college, I can tell this story now because she won't be here until second service. She's got the stomach virus that's going around down in Cleveland. You know how it is in the dorm. They just pass it around like a, like a baton. And so she's sending us pictures of the toilet saying, should I be vomiting? Is this safe? Is this... I'm like, Maddie, you're killing the mood over here. It's Valentine's Day, man. <laughs> it's 9 o'clock. My whole day has come to this moment. <laughs> and now I'm looking at a picture of my daughter's toilet with specks in it. That, uh, so we've, we ruined Michelle's. My sister-in-law is a nurse, so we actually ruined their Valentine's Day and forwarded it onto her. <laughs> but you know what dry heaves are? <laughs> They are your body fighting a virus with all of its strength and with all of its might. And dry heaves are, we're going to get it out of here no matter what. Because your body knows that death is an enemy. If you've been in a room where someone is dying and they're passing away in those last moments, the doctors and the nurses will tell you that the body itself will begin to divert blood from all the limbs, from all the unnecessary, and divert it ultimately to the brain trying to keep it alive because the body knows that death was never meant to be here. It was an enemy. It was an invader that was brought in because of sin. And at that moment, we're all, what the Bible refers to is this idea of us being living dead. It's what the New Testament talks about that a lot, the living dead, the zombies, the walking dead. We're alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. And at a moment, when Jesus came, when he became man, God became man, and he paid this price. We call it penal substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that a price that I couldn't pay in a currency that I didn't own, that he would pay this price for me. And at that moment, I have a decision now to make, that do I want to be restored to the image bearer of God, the spirit of God inside of me? Or will I continue on in my own living dead, my own choice? And at any moment along this, before physical death, we have the opportunity to switch paths at any moment. But then something's going to happen to 100% of the people in this room. We're all going to change addresses. We're all going to breathe our last breath. All of our bodies are going to start diverting the blood from the other organs trying to keep us alive. But ultimately it will fail because death still rules and reigns on this side of heaven. And we'll step into this other place. And the idea of this intermediate state is that we spend 99.9% of our time talking about that. But we don't end there. We literally, you know, Paul talks about I was here or I'll be with Christ immediately. Jesus talks about being in paradise immediately. But there are only three verses in the New Testament, by the way, that even talk about that passage, three, uh, that talk about that intermediate state, and you are looking at them. The, the part where we are in the intermediate state, because what Jesus promises that the intermediate state right after you die, that isn't the end. He will return. It speaks of this judgment. It speaks of this idea of him setting everything right and that you and that I, the Bible, speaks of a literal, physical resurrection, of a reconnection with, I don't know if it's this body. I pray it's not, although I would take the socks if that's part of it, but I'm kind of getting used to Um, We'll be reunited with that body. And these are the only three verses in the New Testament that actually refer to that with Christ on the intermediate state. And don't you think, I kind of wanted more than that. Because what we know is he, he talks about in Luke this, he's speaking to the thief on the cross. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now in paradise, that word paradiso, you know what it means? Garden. It's this picture, the garden. We were created for this other life, this other thing. But we're not yet 
to the other side. So we know that we'll be immediately with him. We know that we will be conscious. And that's kind of it. Don't you want more? <laughs> I kind of wanted more than that. I mean, we see these pictures. You've heard the stories. You know, I personally believe that these have been visions that God is giving them of this place that's to come, but it's going to be awesome. We know it's going to be beautiful, but that's all we've got when it comes to the Bible. And you know, one of the greatest things that I, for me that's been helpful, maybe it'll be helpful for you, was when I realized that the Bible does not exist to answer my every theological question. You're thinking, well, this is it. This is where it goes heresy. No, listen, hang on. Back up. It can't because God is infinite. And everything there is to know about God, if he's truly infinite, every book this side of heaven would be full and it still wouldn't be complete. We get to know a lot on the other side, but on this side, he tells us enough. And the Bible itself exists not to answer every can, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or all those crazy philosophical questions, but it answers the question of how do I get back to God? The problem of sin and of death and the whole story, all 66 books by 40 authors written over a 1,500-year period, written outside our time domain that we now know exists to give us a message from the other side of how to find Jesus and how to be reunited with a God that came to find us. That's all we've got for life with Christ in this intermediate state. And by the way, on the other side of that, the point where we could get to the life without Christ on the other side, to those who would say, I'll not have you to be the Lord over me. We only have one word for that, for that intermediate state. One word, it's Hades. You remember this word? By the way, I go to Haiti quite often. I'm thinking, there's something to that. Like that's hot and miserable and sweaty and swampy. But it's Haiti. And you know what Hades means? Grave. Like that's it. That's all we've got for that. It just says the grave. So when you see the, the word Hades in the New Testament, it just means grave. Now that said, it doesn't mean that there isn't a real place. It doesn't mean that there's a real existence. It, there, there are. Jesus speaks of it often because he uses imagery. And we're going to talk about And most of the imagery that we're going to talk about this morning is imagery that is used specifically about the life after life. Because to follow that trail to the end, there is coming a point towards the end where Jesus is going to return. There's going to be a final resurrection and a final judgment. And if you believe in the rapture of the church and the seven-year tribulation, if you don't, either way, that Jesus' return fits right into that. That moment, that moment of Jacob's wrath, of God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting and sinful world, all happens at that moment. And I'll say this, because in our Western mindset, especially younger kids, you think that, well, that's so harsh. The book of Revelation, that is so hard. It's so mean. Do you know that you, if you've been born in and lived in the 20th century, lived in the century where more humans were killed at the hands of other humans than any other century, cruelly and mercilessly, this morning, as you woke up, it's evening in other parts of the world and there are little children who went to bed without their mamas and their daddies because they were brutally murdered. My point is not to bum you out, but to say that God is righteous and God is just. And the book of Revelation itself was written to a church that was going through those exact things. They were going through a time where there was a Caesar who, for sport, would take Christians and tie them to a pole, put oil on them, and burn, light them on fire 
and use them to light up his court at night. And to them, they would say, God, where is the justice? Where is the justice for me? And we live in a world that if if there was no judgment, there would be no justice. And if there was no justice, there'd be no God. I don't believe. So we can say this morning that that might sound harsh, but it doesn't sound harsh if you grew up in Syria, in northern Iraq, in Malawi, in Uganda, and by the way, in many parts of the United States. But God is going to come and he's going to set it right. Now, there are views on this intermediate state that we don't have time to get into this morning. There are those who believe that it's, it would be like soul sleep, that when you die, that you literally, especially if you're not with Christ, that you would go immediately into a sleep period, and they use passages like Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and they say, well, he was only asleep. Sleep was obviously a metaphor for death. It's used quite a bit. Did Jesus mean that his soul was literally going to sleep? I don't believe so. I believe that there's a consciousness to it. I don't know anything more than that because the Bible doesn't tell us any more than that. Now, when you speak of eternity in general, and by the way, this might feel a little academic this morning, and I, I just don't know how else to do it. And I would encourage you, by the way, don't try to write all this stuff down. Write down what you can, but there are, uh, there's going to be, the, the podcast is available. I'll put the notes in the private Facebook group. And then I would encourage you, you got a hard question, do the hard work. There are two uh, things that have been very handy for me, two resources. One is uh, Tim Mackey, and I'll post this as well. Just Google Tim Mackey, Heaven and Hell, and it is the first link that will come up. And it's a four-part series that he taught in Portland to millennials about heaven and hell. And it is as extensive and thorough as as a talk as I've ever heard. It's amazing. It's about two hours of your time total. And I would also recommend a book called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan and Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Uh... What I appreciate about what they did was they went to the word and said, let's just follow where the word leads us. Because there are other views out there. There are views that, in fact, there are three primary ones that I would explain to you this morning. One is called universalism. Have you heard of universalism? Universalism is what Rob Bell would teach. Universalism is the idea that we're all saved. Everybody from Hitler to Joseph Coney is all saved and we will all be in heaven together because God's grace is that good. Now, universalism is taught in two different camps and make no mistake, they are 100% different from each other. One is a biblical approach that there are people that will literally go to the Bible and use passages like Matthew uh, 18, 14 that says it's uh, 18, 14, Ever, even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish uh, John 12, 47, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And so they would take a passage like that and say, well, it's not God's will that any would perish, so we're all going to be saved. Notwithstanding the idea that what he's saying is not that everybody would be saved, it's just I don't want everybody to not be saved. This is my heart for you is to come to me. But there are those who, even in this community, would teach a doctrine like that, and they say it from a perspective of the Bible. They're going to use the Bible to do it. There's another angle that I think is far more uh, insidious, far more slippery and far more dangerous that's called progressive Christianity. There's a word you're going to hear if you haven't heard it already. Brian McLaren teaches this. This is more the Rob Bell camp, and I'm naming names because I want you to know that when you read Richard Rohr, everything belongs, this is what he's saying. That the Bible is the best that they understood at the time. But we have progressed 
on, and now we understand more. Now, what they're really saying is that God can't do anything that I disagree with. And by the way, if your God does any, you know, if your God is not allowed to do anything that you disagree with or don't think, then your God is probably you. Progressive Christianity teaches us that God speaks in five ways: through our hearts, through our culture, through tradition, through each other. Did I say that one already? And through the Word of God, through the Bible. Now they wouldn't call it the Word of God; they would call it the Bible. Would be uh, an inspired work in the same way that Van Gogh was inspired. When I say inspired, I mean something completely different. And what they would go on to say is that if any one of these four or even three disagree with one or two, they get to rule over the others. So if we say that the culture and the tradition and my heart, I just know in my heart that I just believe this all wrong and I just knew that it couldn't be right, disagrees with the Bible, then they overrule the Bible. Now, I have a problem personally with it because I can't say that I follow Jesus and yet the only information that I have about what he did or didn't say is included in the one book that I don't think is inspired by God to believe. I would go further to say that atheism is a more intellectually honest response than that. And I don't have time to go into it this morning. We'd go into two services and into a third about why I believe that we can trust the Bible, that it's not just some piece of literature, that it is supernatural, that it includes... I mean, by the way, if you're, you know, 40 books in the Old Testament have over 350, some believe 400 prophecies that were all fulfilled in one person on the cross with Jesus, that's an inspired book. That's just not... That's not another great piece of literature. The Holy Spirit was doing something amazing in there. So my point is, is that universalism is from two different camps saying... They're all getting to the same location, but they're coming from two different points for universalism that everyone would be saved. There's another view that is called either conditionalism or annihilation. And I want you to know that I went into this week thinking it wasn't as unknown as I thought it was. Because I'm a Bible guy. I just want, what does the Bible say? And then whatever the Bible says, let the chips fall where they may. And while I say to you that I don't necessarily land on the idea of this, this annihilationism or conditionalism, which is this idea that we were created, not immortal, but immortality was a gift of God to us and that not everybody would be given this gift of eternal life. And that on the other side, that at that moment of judgment, that your soul would be destroyed forever. And I got to tell you that there are lots of scriptures that seem to support that idea. That if you believe that this morning based on the Bible, that there's, that, that I, I could say, hey, you know what, I see your point, I get that. The problem is, is there are three scriptures that don't support it. So either the Bible contradicts itself, which I don't believe it does, or the Bible complements itself and believes. And that there is some kind of, and I would say to you this morning that where I come down on this is that there is some kind of, whatever you believe it might be, that it is an eternal, ongoing. So destructionism, annihilationism, they would say that the word eternal just means that the, the, the result of it is eternal, not the process of it is eternal. If a city is wiped off the map, we hear that phrase, that means that the city is gone forever. So it's not the process, it's the product. But the Bible uses different 
words, there's three scriptures, two of them in Revelation, one that Jesus said, that seems to support this idea that it is a forever and ever idea. And I got to tell you, when I went into this this week, I kind of thought, man, I sure hope Rob Bell is right. That'd be awesome. We could all just go home. But I remembered that God is a God of love and not of harshness and anger. And he would require, if love is in the process, that it requires a choice. That if my wife has been with me, lo, these many years, because I had a gun to her head, because I tied her up, that's not love. That's rape. And God, if there's going to be love allows us a choice. And every one of us gets that choice. And I think part of it is like, you know, oh, it's kind of harsh, but hey, it's not even a hard choice, <laughs> really. It shouldn't be. When you look at the scriptures, and I look at eternity itself, the question of what is it going to be? Is there going to be a lake of fire? Will there be jet skis in hell? When you go through the New Testament, you see multiple different images of this life, this resurrection to eternal death. There are theologians who believe that it is a literal lake of fire, and there are like, you know, guys that are like John MacArthur and Spurgeon, like, they believe it's a literal one. And there are those who believe that it is all metaphor. And they would say metaphor because Jesus would use the picture of fire. In some of the passages that you read, you'll see that in Malachi, the judgment, there's going to be fire coming. In Zephaniah, uh, he, he uses the idea they're going to be consumed by the fire of, of my anger and my judgment. But that said, if I were to say that uh, my wife is smoking hot, you'd say, well, that is factually accurate. <laughs> I can scientifically prove that. But, but she's not smoking, but you know what I mean. If I say she's a ball of fire, you're like, that's actually true. <laughs> If I were to say she's a force of nature, also accurate. These are all different metaphors that describe the same woman. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't mean that she's not all of these qualities, which is also means that there isn't some quality on the other side that is bad. It just may not, it doesn't have to be fire. Fire just gives a picture of something. And when you look at it into the New Testament especially, uh, you see the word hell a lot, right? That's the word. So we see Hades and hell. Those are two different words, two different ideas. Now, in our idea, we'll, we'll conflate those two together. The word Hades, do you remember what it means? Grave, real simple. Hell is actually the word, the Greek word, Gehenna, which is actually a place. Now, keeping in mind, there are those in the biblical side of universalism that say, well, he's just talking about a place. It doesn't mean there isn't a hell then. He's just talking about this. Jesus spoke in metaphor all the time, and the metaphor was a, a word picture, a mental picture of a real thing. The, the servant and the, you know, the, the, the widow and the lost coin and all these parables were over and over again and he spoke of that. But he used the word Gehenna to speak of what the Judea, uh, Judea, Judaic, Judaism, <laughs> Jews, it's the socks, they're taking me off. <laughs> I do feel more powerful. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I've never felt so alive. Gehenna was a place that was spoken of in the Old Testament. Kings like King Ahaz 
and I know that, don't even worry about reading this, it's a lot of text, but they would literally take their children, his own children, burn them alive, sacrifice them. And later the prophet Jeremiah would come along and say, what on earth were you thinking? God would say, I didn't even, this wasn't on my mind, what are you doing? Because of the detestable things that you've done in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is the Hebrew word for uh, the, the word Gehenna, which is the Greek word for Ben-Hinnom, which is this place that I took a picture of when I was in Israel called Gehenna. It's still there. It's a valley they would go into and they would do detestable things there. And God spoke in terms of judgment to them in ways that would be irrevocable, permanent, because you burned your children alive. And by the way, it's easy to look at the Jews and think, how did you do that? Why did you put that in your mind? Except that we live in a nation where that's happened, in our own nation. How, how did that get into our mind 55 million children later? I'm so glad for a God of mercy, aren't you? Because at that cross moment, even that now, I don't know what that means for our nation itself. I know what it means for you and I, the nation of Jesus individually. It's why heaven is so beautiful, I believe. But be that as it may, Jesus, when he spoke of hell, he spoke of Gehenna. It was a literal place that the Jews of that day knew was going to be a bad situation. Their prophets, he, they knew immediately when he said Gehenna. It would be like us using the name of some town that nobody wants to go to. We would know immediately what it is. I'm careful not to say that this morning because <laughs> you might live in it. I don't know. He uses pictures, Jesus, by the way, in these verses, again, these verses are all going to be there. On the, I'll put them in the notes in the private Facebook group. He talks about the danger of being brought before the court. He's, uh, say, if you're even angry with someone, he's, you're going to be thrown into hell, thrown into Gehenna. By the way, Jesus always spoke in hyperbole. He spoke often to make a point. That's why when you have lusted men after a woman, you don't have to go gouge your eye out. He's just making a point, okay? And if you don't know that, I'm going to give you a little hint. Don't gouge your eyes out. That's not what he meant. He's speaking again of hell in Matthew 5.29. That is Gehenna. He's speaking of it in Matthew 10.28. Uh, and by the way, some of those that would use the annihilation view of, would say that's what Jesus is talking about. Be, fear only God who can destroy both the soul, the spirit, and the body in hell. Now, he didn't say he would. He just said he could. So I'm just saying if that's your belief, I want you to know that that's entirely, I, I see the scriptures. I just happen to see these other scriptures that we may get to about eternity about eternal fire, forever and ever. Now, why do I think maybe it doesn't have to necessarily be like a literal lake of fire? When, when, uh, when John would use this image of a lake of fire that we're all very familiar with, he was using imagery from the book of Daniel. And from the throne of Daniel uh, that he spoke of, he saw in the ancient of days and on his throne, and from his throne flowed a river of fire. Where do all rivers go and where do they end? Lakes or seas, right? So I believe this is the, well, this is the end all, be all of the judgment. Every judgment of God, all is going to end all and be all here. Is it literal? I don't know because one of the pictures that God uses also in the scripture is darkness, outer darkness. Have you ever been where there's fire? Fire brings light. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I, it's, I'm, just, I'm looking at this and saying, no, maybe, maybe not. What I can say is that darkness, whenever Jesus spoke of darkness, spoke of regret spoke of remorse, spoke of that, I wish I couldn't, I can't go back and change this. 
that kind of regret. The Bible, Paul speaks about it as destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. These are all images, all pictures, all metaphors that speak of something on the other side, whether it is what Dante and his seven levels of hell, whether it's with Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards, there's something on the other side that you don't want any part of. And there's something on the other side that isn't going to be a surprise. It's not like some twist at the end. <laughs> it seems to be some kind of a continuation of the choice you already made, which is I will not have you to be the Lord over me. A life where he finally says, not my will be done, but thy will be done to you and to I. And that is a prayer that if you pray it on any given basis, sometimes we live it, we may not pray it, that the ultimate answer to that prayer is, here you go. It seems to be that I can look to the scripture and say that that's, there's an eternal state of that somewhere. There are three passages in the New Testament, I'll put them in the, in the notes later, just for the sake of time, that I'll use the phrase forever and ever. And if you're an annihilationist and you're conditionalist, the condition is the idea that it's a conditional thing. Eternal life is a condition. If you're that, there, there are three scriptures that you can't get past. They're there and they say forever and ever, which is why Francis Chan, Dr. Preston Sprinkle, John MacArthur, many theologians throughout millennia have looked at that and said, I can't get past that. There's something that says forever and ever. And we ought to know it. You ought to know it. And as big of a bummer as it is for me to deliver this news to you, I'm just giving you what the Bible says and the word of God says. And if you end up on that side, I want you to know that it wouldn't be because God sent you there. Jeremiah 1 talks about it was their own backsliding that hunted them down, that it was a choice that we made. I'll, I'll wrap up with this, but C.S. Lewis, by the way, another book to add to your list, The Great Divorce that C.S. Lewis wrote. If you haven't read that, it's amazing. If you have, go back and reread it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, says, in the long run, the answer to those who object the doctrine of hell itself is a question. What is it they're asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? He did that on the cross to forgive them they don't want forgiveness in other words they don't think what they did was sin to leave them alone well that's what hell is there are only two kinds of people in the end those who say to God thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end thy will be done all that are in hell choose it and without that self choice it wouldn't be hell can we trust that God will do the right thing Yes. Whenever I get to something like this, and I think, oh man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand that. That seems, I don't, that seems disproportionate. That's, I can go to the cross and say that a God that would do that is good. That a God that would make that choice for us at the core of who he is. I may not be able to get every question answered that I had here that I want to know for sure, I can get the, the most important ones and I can learn who God is here. And I learn that he's good and that his mercy endures forever. And that the choice that he made to become man was a choice that he didn't have to make. 
a choice. He could have called down, you know the words, 10,000 angels and stopped the whole thing at any point, and he didn't because he's good. And Revelation speaks of a time when us, every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be around this throne saying, righteous and true were your judgments, O God. And all that is is King James for high five, Jesus. That was awesome. I don't know how you came up with that, but that was amazing. And we won't do it because we have to. We'll do it because it was right. So whatever's on the other side, there are many who would say, well, I I can't serve a God that would do this, or I can't serve a God that would do that. My question to you is, are you creating God in your image, or will you be surrendered to be created in, in his image, trusting that he's good, and knowing that this side of heaven, isn't it how Jesus always did, like when Peter, like, well, what about John, what about, he's like, just worry about, you worry about you. What about those who have never heard the gospel before? I look to the scripture and I could say, I think I know, but what I don't know is how I'm going to be able to say righteous and true are your judgments and mean it unless he really is good. And I go to the cross and he is good. And but because I don't know yet, you know, that's why we're going to Morocco next week or something, two weeks, because there are people there who just don't know. And it's not fair that they don't know when there are people here that could tell them. So we're going to go. This morning, Grady Pickett posted more pictures from northern Iraq walking through ISIS tunnels with military. But you know why they're there? Because they planted a church to tell Syrians who have fled this ISIS horror that Jesus actually loves them. And he loves them enough to send this white kid and his white wife and his white kids all the way to Iraq to bring them heat and to bring them food and to bring them love. Allah didn't do that. Jesus did. That's why we go, because on the other side, and by the way, that's what we're going to talk about next week. Jesus isn't a communist, FYI. And we're all going to be, you know, standing before his throne, but there's, he talks of these rewards for us who have followed Jesus and, and obeyed what he asked us to do. We're all going to be in heaven, but there are moments where those will be rewarded, and we're going to share some stories of that. A couple of people right here in our own congregation that have these visions and dreams, we're going to hear those. But for today, as I, as I hang this up, as I bring this in for a landing, I can't leave it with the idea that hell is inescapable because it's not. Jesus is so kind and he's so awesome that he, he came here to make sure that you would never have to. The Bible says that hell, whatever that is, was made for Satan and his angels. If you go to that, whatever that is, whatever you believe that is, if you are there, you are an invader. You weren't meant for that. You weren't created for that. Don't choose that today. I'm going to pray for you. Mo's got a couple quick things to share, but I want to pray and ask for you and I this morning that if you've been around the word along, I would just ask you to go today thinking, okay, I want to be, I want to be right with God. If, if you've followed Jesus, by the way, you were already right with God. That whole thing is, you're done. He's, he made you right. But if you're not sure, you know, just do some praying with the Lord this morning. Do, do some business with God. Father, would you bring enlightenment to us? When you came to seek and save, you saved us from this continuation of our own choices in our own life. And man, we're so grateful for that.
And I ask for anyone here this morning, Lord, that if, if you, that you are knocking on their heart, that they would answer this morning. And for the entirety of our family, that we might be walk out of here thankful today that we had a God that saved us, not ethereally, but quite literally saved us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.